The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke uh, and kind of leading up to Christmas and then talking about his birth and and we're going to continue on through Luke, but I want to do a little sidebar today. I want to turn. I want us to turn to um, Hebrews chapter one, and I'd like us to see the answer to this question: uh, Why does God now speak to us in a son? Why did He make this huge change at the coming of Christ? In fact, it appears as though, from what He says here in Hebrews one, that this is one of the purposes of Him sending His Son into the world, so that He could speak to us through a son, rather than simply through the prophets. And, and uh, wise men in the Old Testament, he's given us a brand new way of, of communi- that he communicates with us, and that is through his son. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, let me read uh, the first few verses of this chapter. And I'm, like I say, this is a sidebar. We're going to get back to Luke next week. But the writer of Hebrews begins this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In other words, there were dreams and there were people, uh, some of these prophets actually heard the voice of God speak to them. Uh, there was all kinds of ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. But notice in verse 2, in these last days, in these last days, this is written in the first century, by the way, when the last days begin. In these last days, he has spoken to us in, quite literally, in a son or in someone such as a son, and most fathers know that if they wanted to communicate some, something to someone who wouldn't want to understand, one of the best ways would be to send your son, if you have a son who's close to your heart, and him communicate that truth. And that's what God did for us. He sent his son into the world, and through his son, he speaks to us today. And he says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. This is why he's called the firstborn, the prototokos. He's, he's the one who is the heir of everything. The entire creation belongs to Jesus Christ because it's a gift from the Father. It's a manifestation of the Father's love for the Son. It's great to be around people, a family where the Father loves his Son and the Son loves his Father. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the eternal Son of God who loves his Father, and the Father does everything that he does as a manifestation of his love for the Son. The reason he saved you, the reason he brought the gospel to you was because of his love for his Son. Then he goes on, let me just read a few more verses, and he is the radiance of his glory. That is, the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After he ascended back to the Father, he took a seat of authority at the right hand of the Father, having become as much better than the angels as, has, as he has in, inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today? I have begotten you, that is, I have made you known to the whole creation. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he, bega- when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And, the angel, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins. Uh, there's a play on words here. The word angel, the word spirit, rather, is the word for wind. 
And uh, so he's, he's their spirits. And some translations actually say that. He makes his angels spirits. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. The Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. In other words, he's never going to get old. I like that. And to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who's become flesh. He was, we saw him, his birth announcement back in chapter two of Luke. And uh, as we go through the book of Luke, we're going to see the whole story of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But I want to take a, just a few minutes this morning, that's relative, of course, but I want to take a few minutes this morning to, uh, to look at this, this question, why does God now speak to us in a son rather than through prophets like he did in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, I just, to, again, remind you of the book of Hebrews, we, we don't know who the author is. There was a period of time in the history of the church when it was assumed that it was the Apostle Paul. But it probably wasn't because of, of uh, just looking at the, the writing of the writer of Hebrews and the writing of Paul. But the recipients, we have a pretty good idea who they are. They were Christian Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think a minute about this. Those among the nation of Israel who, who believed on Christ and became Christians, they became followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. In fact, John says this. He says, he came unto his own things at his creation. He came to his creation, and those who were his own, his own people, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. But, John says, as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So there were a number of Jews who actually believed on Jesus. Now think of this church in Jerusalem. All Jewish people a great minority in that nation. The great majority of them never did receive Christ at that time. And so here they are in this situation. And this letter itself tells us why he's writing to them. And the reason he's writing to these Christian Jews was they were in trouble spiritually. It says all kinds of things about it. In chapter 6, he says they had become sluggish. You ever have anybody tell you that? But these are about spirituality. They've been, they have become sluggish spiritually. They no longer have the same kind of passion for God as they did at the beginning and for Christ as they did at the beginning. He, goes, he also says in chapter 2, they were not paying, they need to pay closer attention to what they had heard. They're forgetting the gospel and its implications for their life. Same chapter, he says, they're in danger of neglecting this great salvation that was given to them freely. At first, even though they were a minority, they, they were rejoicing 
in the manifest presence of Jesus through the Spirit as he was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And they rejoiced in this new found relationship with God through Christ. But now it's getting old to them because they're a minority and they're cut off from their families. Imagine what it would be like when you became a Christian as your whole family cut you off and says, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. This, this, This is different than our culture. You can become a Christian in our culture in a family, and they may not like it, but it wouldn't be the same as in Israel. For a Jew to claim that Jesus was the Messiah would cost them everything. It would cost them their inheritance, for example. It would cost them fellowship with their family. They would be outcasts from their culture. And so they're beginning to feel that. So they're wavering in their confession of their hope. That is their hope that Jesus is coming back. They are spiritually feeble. He says they appeared ready to die. And others had already gone back. They had thrown away their Christianity. Now, he doesn't mean to imply that you can lose your salvation. But there are people who begin to follow Christ, claim Christ, confess Christ, but do not continue to follow him. And Jesus said that would happen. Because there has to be a very deep and profound change deep within the heart of a person for them to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They have to learn to hear his voice. And he says some of them are coming short of the promises. They're yielding to willful sin, shrinking back unto destruction. In chapter 12, he says, refusing him who speaks from heaven, turning a deaf ear to God. These kind of statements throughout the book reveal there's a real danger going on, and he's concerned about them. And so he's writing them this letter. And this is why he is so concerned. Many had lost their joy and become enslaved to lesser powers than Jesus Christ. In other words, idolatry. There were other things in their life that actually gave them a reason to live than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so life began to be very difficult as followers of Christ in that culture for them. Now, I want to read a, I want to read a quote to you. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Tim Keller has quoted this guy about four times in four different books. That's where I first saw it, but I've seen it elsewhere. You can go on YouTube and actually listen to the transcription of this, this uh, graduation speech. But this is David Foster Wallace. If you've never heard of him, he's a novelist, and he was one of the most celebrated young novelists in our country for a long time. Well, in 2005, he spoke to the graduating class at the university where he taught. It's an elite school. And he was an elite professor. His, both of his parents were celebrated scholars. And so he taught there. And this is what he said at the graduation. In fact, I got it here, so I'll turn it up. He says, everybody worships. This is no believer. He's not a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. This, this was about two years before he committed suicide. At early age, early 40s. He goes on, he says, the only choice we get is to what? To worship. I don't know how he learned that, but that's a biblical truth. We were made to worship, and we are going to worship something. We're going to worship the true and living God, or we're going to worship an idol. We're going to pour ourselves in. We're going to draw life from something that we believe is the most important thing. And so he says, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is this, that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. (laughs) 
Anything else that you choose to worship will eat you alive. He goes on, he says, if you worship money and things, that is, you, this is where you tap real meaning in life is from money and possessions, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough anyway. He goes on and he says, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. (laughs) Amen. Uh, Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to, to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, and that's what he did. And when you hear his interviews, if you go on YouTube and listen to some of his interviews, it's obvious he's incredibly intelligent. But after he says something, he almost cringes because he's always afraid he didn't say the right thing. And everybody's hanging on every word that he's, that he's saying. He says, worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Uh, You see, our default setting is to worship the living and true God. But because of our strong rejection of God in the fall, we would rather worship anything instead of the true and living God and the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the work of the Spirit. Now... um, that's quite a statement. And the, the, the quote here, I think, reveals something that we would all say amen to. Those times in our lives as believers that we, have, that we have kind of wandered into a kind of idolatry where something else in our life is more important than Jesus Christ, we found out that we became very empty and unsatisfied with life because we were made and remade through regeneration to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem had hoped that their countrymen would speedily turn to the Messiah, the Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, but they didn't, and they were greatly disappointed. And their faith in Jesus was alienating them from their own people and families. Now, the kind of thing they were up against was, for example, we know the story of Saul who became Paul, that that he was pursuing Christians to arrest them and throw them into prison and literally to execute them for saying that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the kind of thing they were facing. There are a lot of Christians today who believe we're going to be facing that kind of thing in the United States that we're going to be facing less and less favorite child status in this country. There was a time, and I don't know that it was best, but there was a time in our country when churches were given, in, in any community, it was, a, it was something that the community wanted. They wanted to have churches in their community because they produce good things for life in the community. But we're facing a day now where Uh, The church is, there are people who openly, openly attack the church and the whole idea of the church and worshiping Jesus Christ as though he is God. So you can imagine what they were feeling, the fear and so forth. And they weren't experiencing the manifest presence of Christ as they had when he was with them. 
And they, never, they no longer heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so you can imagine that they're wondering, a lot of them are wondering, did we do the right thing? Throwing over our family relationships, throwing over everything that we had going for us in order to follow Jesus. And so he writes this, this letter to shake them up because they were beginning to, to crave something more and other than Jesus. For example, acceptance in their own culture. But the main problem is the same as our problem. It's living without the manifest presence of God. Living without the manifest presence of God. We can't do it. Christians cannot live without the manifest presence of God. I'm not talking about signs and wonders. I'm talking about living where you actually know that you're hearing the voice of Jesus Christ through his word. That this isn't some distant, this isn't some class you're taking and you're studying the Bible so you know the story and you know all about it. Do you encounter Jesus Christ when you come to his word? So the writer of Hebrews begins this way, that God has decided that he would speak to us in a brand new way, and that is through his son. And you wonder, well, why did he take him out then? Why didn't he leave him here? Why didn't he leave him on the earth so that more and more people could hear his voice? Well, in the plan and purpose of God, Jesus said this, in fact. It wasn't until he died and was resurrected and ascended to the Father that he could actually be the head of the church around this entire earth. Around the whole world, you can find Christians. Wherever you go, you can find Christians. Worshiping the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. But what we desperately need is to be very much aware of the presence of Christ in our lives. Or life gets really, really bad for us. You remember in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Peter is speaking to people who had never seen Jesus, but he had. And he says, he's writing to these people that are scattered because they're being persecuted through Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia. And he's writing to them and he says... You haven't seen him, that is like I have, but you love him. And you're not seeing him now, but believing in him. And as a result, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see, knowing that Jesus Christ is in your life, in your daily life, knowing that you have a relationship with Christ and it is obvious that he is engaged in your life. You have a relationship with him. You're loving him and you are trusting him. You'll rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's pretty radical, isn't it? I mean, you might say, well, you know, life would be a lot better if you received Jesus. And then people receive Jesus and everything, the bottom falls out because all of a sudden they're persecuted and hated by some people. What is it about this faith and love of Jesus Christ that fills our hearts with joy? In this book, in chapter 10, in Hebrews, verse 22, uh, the writer of Hebrews says to these people, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. So this book is about learning to live for Christ in a hostile world. The message is about drawing near and pressing on. That's what it's all about. It's all about you learning how 
to draw near to God through Christ and to press on in this relationship that you have with him that's going to be characterized by joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Well, I want you to notice what he does. He's making this comparison. Um, well, the question, does this have anything to say to us? I say, yes. Notice how God spoke to the fathers before Christ in verse 1. It says, he spoke long ago to the fathers. Who are the fathers? The fathers he's talking about are the fathers of the Hebrews. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that whole group of fathers of the nation who had been called out from the other nations and became God's people. And he says, God spoke to them in a certain way. He spoke to them in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. So they were spoken to by humans that God spoke to, and then they spoke to these people. But it wasn't God's final word. Uh, God has spoken is true. It's basic to the whole argument of the book, of this book, Hebrews, and the Christian faith. What if God had remained silent after the fall? What if he had just remained silent? After all, we rebelled against him in Adam, and we were far from him. What if he had just shut his mouth and said nothing? Well, guess what? God has been speaking from the very beginning. He's been speaking ever since the fall. If you read Genesis chapter 3, when the fall takes place, what happens? God speaks to Adam and Eve. And he's been speaking to his people ever since. First, he says, he spoke to the fathers in the prophets. But finally, and we're experiencing this, he has spoken to us in such a one as a son. God speaks to us through his son. Divine revelation is progressive. What I mean by that is not that it was, it was somehow less than perfect before and now it's getting perfect. It's not that. The progression is from promise to fulfillment. And this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. The Old Testament is filled with promises. And the New Testament is filled with fulfillment. We have a promise of come, the coming of Christ in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promises to send a Redeemer, to send a Savior, to send someone to save us from our fallenness and all that that entails. So he begins promising immediately. And the Old Testament is filled with these promises. And there's progression as you go because it goes from promise to fulfillment. And the ultimate fulfillment of his promise was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's promised in so many ways. You know, as, uh, some of you know, could quote uh, Isaiah 714 if I started the verse for you. But Isaiah 714 says that a pregnant's going to be, vir- a, a, a virgin's going to be pregnant with a child. And this child is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. So a supernatural entrance into the human race, but a real human being. As Paul puts it, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he wasn't sinful, but he had real flesh. He had a real humanity. He got hungry and tired and all those things. And yet he's the eternal son of God. So this progression, the earlier stage of the revelation before this fulfillment of these promises, they were given in a variety of ways. God spoke in his mighty works. They saw creation. They saw what God did. They saw mercy and judgment manifested by God. They saw God in the storm and the thunder. 
through Moses. Uh, Elijah heard God in a still small voice, if you remember, in the cave. But God spoke to him. By And to those who wouldn't heed the gently flowing stream of Shiloh, God speaks to them through the mighty Euphrates. What that means is uh, they, they refuse the kindness of God. And so God says, okay, you, you don't want what I'm providing for you. The gently flowing waters of Shiloh was the water source of Jerusalem. It wasn't impressive, but it satisfied everyone's need. The water flowed into the city. They had all that they needed. But they didn't have a big dam on a river and an ultimate source of water that they could say they produced. And so they, wouldn't, they didn't want to trust God. And so God says, okay, you don't, you don't, you're not satisfied with the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh? I'll send the Euphrates River right up to your neck. And what he's talking about was the coming of judgment on the nation through Babylon, through Babylonia. It was because they rejected God's provision. And so he speaks to them in these different ways, by priest and prophet and sage and singer and poet. You probably never think of God speaking to us through songs, but he does. That's what the the psalms are, are hymns, they're psalms. We're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And God communicated. There was great variety and fullness, but it was fragmentary. It wasn't the whole story. The whole story wasn't known until Jesus came. And this is how he has spoken to us in Christ. Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So all those promises in the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, well, maybe there is a basis for prosperity gospel because God promises people who lived in Israel, I'm going to bless you. You just obey me. You live in obedience to me and I'll bless you. You trust me and I'll give you the water you need for your crops. I'll give you health and strength. But if you don't trust me, you're going to suffer for it. And that's exactly what happened. But now God is speaking to us in these last days through his son. Why does he say these last days? I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is troubling to some people. You read the New Testament, and all the New Testament writers are describing our time from Christ until now, until Jesus comes back as the last days. In fact, John, in his his little epistle, 1 John, he calls it, we're living in the last hour. What does he mean by that? He means that something has happened. 1 Peter 4, Peter says, the end of all things has drawn near. And the picture is of something coming right up to the cliff, and right up to the edge, right there. That's where we're at. He says, the end of all things has drawn near. What happened? Christ came. <laughs> the fulfillment of all the promises of salvation and deliverance is through Christ, and Christ has come. And what they struggle with so much, the Jews struggle with so much when people begin to declare and Jesus revealed the fact that he was Messiah, what he was, was he was so unimpressive. He wasn't impress, impressive. He was born to a poor couple that when they offered the offering for him that they had to do as a baby, they offered what poor people could offer. Two turtle doves because they were poor. 
Jesus comes into the world, there's nothing that's impressive about him. As people looked at him, he didn't have the signs of wealth or power. He grows up in a home uh, with some other children. Mary stayed a virgin until he was born, but then she had other children. He has brothers, and he had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. He grows up in a home, and not, they weren't convinced that he was a Messiah until after his resurrection. Isn't that amazing? And so they were not impressed with him. And in fact, when you looked at him, Isaiah says when he was beaten, some of you saw The Passion of Christ, the movie, and you saw the condition that they portray him in. Well, guess what? That's what Isaiah says. He was beaten so profusely that you would not recognize him as a man. Impressive? It seems like he has no power. He has no ability to be the king of the kingdom of God. And yet what God was doing was he was manifesting where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What that means is when he looked his weakest, when it looked like his enemies were completely going to destroy him, that was the greatest act of grace that has ever taken place. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. They hung him on a cross to shame him, stripped him naked, beat him to a pulp, hung him on a cross, and they thought now his followers will reject him as Messiah. But what they didn't know was this was the great act of the atonement. This was Christ dying for our sins. This was Christ paying the price that we owed and could not pay so that he could give us life, so that he could bring us into the family. And so now God is speaking to us through a son. The real question is, do you want to hear? In Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Do you want to hear? See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who who warned them on earth, he's talking about on Mount Sinai, They heard the voice of God because God came down and manifested his presence. And they said, please, we don't want to hear anymore. We don't want to hear God speaking. It's too scary. And so he says, those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him, who warns us from heaven. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is determined to speak to us through his son. Now, this word refuse here is, you know how it is when somebody gives you an invitation? Would you come celebrate our third child's 16th birthday, please? We want you to come and be with us and RSVP. So you write them a note and you say, thanks very much for inviting us, but we're just too busy. We're not going to be able to make it. That's what this word refuse means, a polite refusal. A lot of times what we can do is we can carry on as Christians and look like we're following Christ externally, but inside our hearts have said, no thanks, I'm too busy. In in, uh, Luke chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, there's a woman in that story, Anna, who was at least 100 years old because she had married at whatever age, say 15 or 20, And she lived with her husband for seven years, and he died, and she was a widow for 84 years. And so what she did was she went and became a servant, a minister in the temple. But what did she do? What could this woman do that she had been doing all these years, 84 years? You know what her ministry was? Prayer and fasting. That was her ministry. 
Prayer and fasting. It says that. She served, she ministered through prayer and fasting. She didn't refuse. And now she comes to see what she calls the deliverance of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem that she had been waiting for her whole life, waiting to see him. And what did he look like? He looked like a little baby. He looked like just a little baby. But she knew who she was looking at. She was looking at the Messiah. The Messiah that she took in her arms. In fact, the prophet who was there, Simeon, he said, okay, Lord, now you can take me home. I have finally seen the salvation of God. In this little baby, he saw the salvation of God. Well, you know what was happening, don't you? God was opening his heart to understand what he was doing in Christ. Now, God has spoken in Christ. No matter how many promises God has made, they are, yes, in Christ. And through him, they are amen, spoken by as of the glory of God. That's Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 1. God reveals his son. What do we do? We respond in worship. You know, what, you know what characterizes worship, true worship? Joy. You know why we have a hard time worshiping at times? No joy. You know what will give us joy? Our eyes being open to Christ. I, used to, I was brought up in a context where this pattern I had in, in a prayer and in, in the Christian life was when I went to the Father, I, I, almost, I almost had the idea that I was supposed to do penance for sin. But what I wanted was, I wanted to feel the presence of God that would assure my heart that I was right with him, that he had forgiven me. And that was kind of immature, but you know what? I still want that. I still want to feel the presence of Christ, don't you? I want in my Christian life to actually experience the reality of his presence because God has decided to speak to us through him in these last days. That doesn't just mean uh, recently. It means we're living in a particular time. We're living after the coming of Christ. And because we're living after the coming of Christ and Christ has ascended to the Father, therefore, God has determined, this is what it says here, that God has determined to speak to us through his Son. So how do you hear him? Do you hear audible voice? No. How do you hear him? You hear him as the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your eyes to the very words of Christ in the word of God. You hear his heart. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Somebody told me, a guy was giving me his testimony, and he said, that he is growing up, he thought he could never be a Christian because Christian, Christianity was for good people. His, both his parents were Christians, and they were good people. And he said, I knew I could never be like that because he was already into, he was an alcoholic, he said, by the time he was 14. And then he became a meth addict after he graduated from high school. And he said, I knew I could never be a Christian because Christianity was for good people. And so what I started doing, uh, he was working for a guy, and he was doing a little bit of meth, and he was selling, he was cooking it and selling it, but he had to keep on taking a little bit because he didn't want to go through withdrawals. So he got a job with a guy building houses. So here they are, they're building houses, and he's a meth addict. 
but he's cut way back so he can function, work all day. And guess what? He got hooked up with a guy who says to him, you know, you need to start reading the Bible. And he gave him a Bible. And it was almost like an order. If you're going to work for me, you're going to read the Bible. So he started reading the Bible. And he says, I'm doing drugs. I'm still doing drugs, but I'm reading the Bible. I'm not doing a lot of drugs. I'm not high all the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm still in the, I haven't repented, nothing. I just started reading the Bible and I discovered, no, Christianity is not for good people. It's for broken people. It's for sinners. Jesus said, it's the sick who need a physician, not the well. He came into the world to save sinners. Paul says he came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, the Apostle Paul. And so he began to discover this, and, and as he's reading, get this, that the Spirit of God began to open his ears to the Word of Christ in this pathetic lifestyle that he had lived. He, had, he said that he had stayed so, he stayed clear of his parents. He didn't even want them to know he was alive. And they did. They thought he had died. And yet God saved him. Well, how can anybody get saved without you telling him the gospel? Well, what happened was he started reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit began opening his eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. And he began to, so to speak, hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Not an audible voice, just the clear testimony of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 is talking in that context about the testimony of God concerning his son. And basically what he's saying is you've got to believe God's testimony about his son. Isn't it amazing? You can believe all kinds of people, their testimony about Christ. They have real strong opinions. They tell you this and that and the other thing. But what John says, you've got to believe God's testimony concerning his son. And this is the testimony, he says. God has given to us eternal life, but this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has the life. And whoever does not have the son does not have the life. You see, believer, God wants you to hear from Christ. He wants to speak to you through Christ. Have you ever thought about this? Everything that we know about God, everything we know about the Father, we have learned it through Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures. You see, he's God's great revelation. And the only way that I can experience the kind of joy that Peter's talking about is by listening to the Son. By listening to the Son. And you say, what is this? Is this some kind of mysticism? No. It's some kind of seriousness about believing that his word is what he says it is. That the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, pierces to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and passions of your heart, the things that are really moving your heart. You know what will happen if you come to the word of God and you say, I want to hear, I want to know Christ. The spirit of God begins to reveal Christ to you. And you know what happens when Christ is revealed to you? We saw this in John 1. In him was life, and the life, that is, this eternal life that was in Jesus, is the light of men. This is the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man. And what that means is you get close to Christ, and you're going to see the truth about yourself. That's why you flee to God. That's why you exercise faith in Christ, because you see the truth about yourself when you see Christ. 
And that's what, and so that's why some of us would like to stay away from this stuff so that I, I don't have to feel this way. I want to be king of the world. I want to be my own king. And yet when I get close to Christ, I found out, I find out I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. I have to have him. We can't even breathe as Christians without him. He gives us our breath. He gives us everything that we need. He is all that we need. And we rest in him. So when we talk about hearing him, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? Well, we're told, Hebrews 1, it's Jesus. In fact, there's a verse that's related to this. It's uh, Romans 8, 1. It says this, 1, 8 and 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? It means that when you come to have a relationship with Christ, instead of hearing the commandments engraved on stone, what you begin to hear are the commandments of your Savior, the commandments of your Lord, the commandment of the one who laid down his life for you. Love the Father so much he died for you, and the book of Revelation says he loves you so much that he died for you. And when you start hearing commandments from Christ, it's no longer the reaction is not that I'm going to disobey. I don't want anything to do with it. Instead, you, you want to know, how can I be obedient to Christ? How can I learn to obey him? Well, you have to have the Holy Spirit. But guess what? This may be news to you, but every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them. So you have the Holy Spirit, and he's there in order to empower you to actually hear the voice of Christ through his word and respond in faith and worship. And so that's why I put those words of that, this chorus up here, wherever it is. Uh, I can't remember where I'm at. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, the more love he be so. Should I sing this to you? <clears throat> The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven, my heart overflows. The longer I serve him, sweeter he grows. Is that really true? Van Savener, who's... uh, (laughs) Van Savener who is gone, he's, with, he's in heaven now, but he was a, a Southern Baptist exhorter revivalist. And he said something one time, I still remember, he said, uh, more lies in the church, more lies are told in a song service than any other time. Because we sing things that we really don't believe that aren't a reality in our life. When I was thinking about this song, I love this song, but I love the reality of it, don't you? The longer I serve him, I got to tell you, it's really true. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. And when you're walking with him, each day is like heaven and your heart overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. We have a wonderful Savior, and God wants to speak to us through him. That's why he sent him 
so that he could speak to us through his son. And the son's voice will win your heart. It will capture your heart. When you hear the commandments of Christ through what he calls the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's energizing and empowering. I was telling my wife the other day, I can still remember some years back, uh, it was probably in, uh, let's see, it was probably late 70s. I came to understand that Jesus commanded me to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. And I got to tell you, it changed my life on the inside. Because it was so incredibly, such an incredible blessing just to be obedient to Christ, to obey Christ. I already did love her, but I didn't love her like Christ loved her. Like he loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want to tell you, when you obey Jesus... It brings gladness and joy and worship to your life. So my whole, uh, my whole thought here is that I want you to believe the truth, that his word isn't just a book that tells you the story of God, which it certainly does. It tells you the whole story of redemption, the good news of creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. It does all that. But this is... This, especially the New Testament, when Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send you another helper, and he is going to remind you of everything I taught you. Jesus told them that. Everything I taught you, you're going to remember, because the Spirit's going to give you remembrance of it. That's why John in 90 AD could write about what happened 60 years before that Jesus had taught him. I want to tell you, he hasn't made you that promise. He hasn't made me that promise, but... What he has done is he's given us the results of that promise, which is this entire New Testament is the great gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is a gospel of, of Christ in reality, but the New Testament tells us about his birth and life and death and burial and resurrection and his commandments to us. You know what the mark of a Christian is, the mark of Christians? The mark of Christians is that we love each other the way Christ loved us. That would, remember, that's a new commandment, John 13, 34. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another the way Christ, that way I have loved you, Jesus said. He's speaking to them. I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another the way I have loved you. That is almost, no, that is really impossible apart from the Spirit, isn't it? That's why Paul says, and Peter says this, uh, love one another fervently from the heart, because love covers a multitude of sins. Why do we need that? Well, because we sin against each other a lot. That's why. And so it is hard to love each other. But it's the command of Christ. And his spirit will empower you to do that. And when you hear that command coming from Christ, you get, you know, read, read John 13, 34 today. And hear the words of Jesus. And you tell me if you can resist obeying the one who died for you. And who's been raised for you. And who loves you. And the way the world is going to, we're going to know that we are his disciples, this is the only mark of true Christianity, is that we love each other. The only mark we're given in Scripture is that we love each other. The way Christ loved us. You know how he loved us. He laid down his life for us. That's how he loved us. So I'm going to take a minute to pray for us as a congregation. Father, um, I, I come before you now. 
with a profound desire that's been haunting me these last few weeks. I desperately want us as a local church to manifest the reality of being a people who listen to Christ Jesus in his word. That the reason I read the Bible every day isn't so that I can say I read the Bible every day, but it's because I want to hear the Savior speak through his word. I thank you, Father, that it is so motivating, so empowering, so glorious. It's what brought us to faith in the first place, that you caused the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in our hearts. And we actually, for the first time, heard his voice in our hearts. And we embraced him by faith in the power of the Spirit. I pray, Father, that you'd make us a people this little community of faith, make us a people who seek every day to hear your voice and to walk in response, that we would learn, not only learn to obey what you've commanded us, all that you've commanded us, but learn how to show others how to obey all that you've commanded us. May we love one another the way Christ has commanded us to, so others, when they come in, they can see what it's like to obey the commands of the eternal Son of God who came into the world to speak for the Father into our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would do that in us, that you would cause a profound, deep humbling to take place in our lives. I pray that you would motivate some of us to fulfill the ministry of prayer and fasting, that we would see the need for us to pray and intercede for And appeal to you, Father, to work in the lives of our brothers and sisters in this fellowship. That we would love one another the way Christ has loved us. That that would be the draw. It wouldn't be that we do things so well. It would be that we have a Savior who speaks to his people through his word. I pray, oh God, please work in us. Please change us. Please make us true disciples of Jesus who make disciples, I pray. Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.